this is Radio Health Journal. I'm Reed Pence. This week, medicine for the homeless. I had people when I began to listen to them by the campsites and riverbanks who would just break down crying, saying, I can't believe someone cares that we're still alive here. All that and more this week on Radio Health Journal. I'm Nancy Benson, host of Radio Health Journal. If you enjoy Radio Health Journal, you'll also like our sister show. Here's a preview of what they're covering on Viewpoints this week. Now, why would you assume that lying requires more mental action, more mental energy, if you will, than telling the truth? After all, humans lie all the time. The unreliable technology of the lie detector test. Then... I never thought that my my wife would be potential threat to herself and so I had to grapple with that that like here she is this woman I love might not be safe how one couple navigated their way through a mental health crisis these stories in depth this week on your public affairs magazine viewpoints listen to viewpoints on your favorite radio station iTunes and Stitcher Nobody really knows the number of homeless in the United States. The federal government estimates that on any given night, about 600,000 Americans will be homeless. Over the course of the year, as many as 3 million people may experience homelessness, at least for a while. And even though the homeless are increasingly visible, most of them would prefer not to be. I was first of all shocked at how many people were actually tucked into the nooks and crannies of Pittsburgh. A lot of people just hiding, trying to not be that noticeable, and others not so much, but just this vast array of humanity that I really hadn't been aware of. That's Dr. Jim Withers, medical director and founder of the Pittsburgh Mercy Health System's Operation Safety Net and the Street Medicine Institute. He spent more than two decades meeting the homeless out on the street, caring for their health. Their health conditions were poor, and it didn't take me long to realize that virtually none of them had primary care. There were untreated hypertension, there were people with cancers, there were people with large venous ulcers with maggots in their legs, people whose wounds were festering. It was really like going to a third world. I thought we were seeing very complicated medicine in the hospital. People were coming from all over the world to Mass General, which is a pretty wonderful hospital. I loved it. So when I went to the community, I thought it was going to be easy, that I thought I would have a year of just getting to know people and doing the kind of medicine I was used to. It took me no more than 10 minutes to realize that this was way more complicated and more complex than I had ever dreamed. The first thing that was apparent, that you know, infestations with lice, scabies, and bed bugs, all of those things were really, you know, the first time I'd really encountered them in big droves. Dr. Jim O'Connell is president of the Boston Health Care for the Homeless program and author of the book Stories from the Shadows, Reflections of a Street Doctor. He says that despite bed bugs and lice, most of the diseases he treats among the homeless seem pretty much like anyone else's. It was pretty much everyday common illnesses that I had been trained to take care of. Because after all, homeless people have the same kinds of issues, hypertension, emphysema, they have rheumatoid arthritis, they have all sorts of issues going on that I had been used to seeing. What I was unprepared for, though, was that these were folks who had had these chronic conditions for years and had not gotten any care. So I was seeing for once the natural history of disease unencumbered or untreated by the medical system. So almost everybody I knew had been in care. These are people that had the same illnesses that had been out of care for years. And the devastating long-term effects were vividly apparent. 
Depending on the estimate, someone in chronic homelessness can expect to live only until his late 40s or early 50s. Withers says if it were a recognized World Health Organization diagnosis, being homeless in America would be one of the worst illnesses a person could have. That's because overlaid on all of the typical health problems are often a variety of mental health issues that aren't the norm in most patients. These are people who were suffering from enormous burdens of medical problems complicated by mental health issues, complicated by substance use issues, and I'm sure is that just the long-term effects of having grown up in just the worst of circumstances, the most abject of poverty, in foster care, kids that had ADD that wasn't recognized and were seen as troublemakers, so they never did well in school. Many didn't learn how to read or write. Very few came from intact families. Many of the homeless folks you'll see will have suffered terrible abuse as children, physical, emotional, sexual. So you realize that the people who have lost in what I think of as a musical chair game of getting housing are frequently those people that are just struggling with the most challenges. I just never thought about the complicated social determinants of health the way I got handed it into my face when I walked into the clinic at the shelter. It's a matrix of things that are all interacting mental health prior trauma, molestations when they were kids, addictions that have settled in. Mental health disorders are very prominent out there. But physical disability also leads people to be unable to really participate in the workforce and chronic illnesses are out there. So it's all these things interact. And much like with domestic violence victims, people over time lose hope. They just survive one day to the next. And so that's that perspective that people have that you know, I've tried everything I can do and I can't get out of this situation. I'll just survive today and that's all I'm going to think about. But if street people are in survival mode and ignore health problems long enough, they usually end up in a hospital's emergency department where they may rack up enormous medical bills. In Los Angeles, 23% of the homeless use the emergency room as their primary care. In San Francisco, 40% have used the emergency room in the past year, which is three times the national average. Even here in Pittsburgh, our busiest hospital at Mercy Hospital, I looked at the data and 34% of the highest utilizers of our emergency room are part of our street population. They're often uninsured unless you have a targeted program to get them insured. And it's really a wasteful way to deliver health care. In a study from the University of California, San Diego, about 15 years ago, researchers tracked more than 500 homeless chronic alcoholics for three years. They found that over that time, those patients landed in the emergency room more than 3,300 times and accumulated a total health care bill of nearly $18 million. And O'Connell says those costs are only the beginning. I've learned that not only are homeless people suffering from a severe burden of illness for which we as a society are paying a heavy price in hospital costs, emergency room costs, police costs, but those costs really are significant to society. I look at it as the cost of doing nothing about that problem, and I think any money we can invest in addressing the problem is likely to be something that if it doesn't save money, it clearly will improve health and quality of life for not only homeless people, but for all of us. I'm a proponent, as long as, unfortunately, we do have people sleeping on the streets, that every community should have a street medicine program. This is what the Street Medicine Institute is all about. We've helped start or connect 50 or so programs throughout the United States that are approaching people with the same philosophy of being there with them. To me, it's a fundamental requirement. If you're going to work with people who are now increasingly seen as not part of society, It may self-identify that way. You need a special approach to make 
that connection. You need respectful ways to create a welcoming, non-judgmental face to healthcare so that they can walk through that door. However, some street people will never walk into a clinic. And if they ever see a doctor, they'll never get follow-up care. They have more immediate, important things to do. If you need to get in bed tonight and your next meal and you have to stay safe from the elements and you have to avoid being picked on or something like that, your struggle to survive out in the streets and in the shelters means that you are caught in an immediacy that doesn't let you think about long-term effects of any illness you have or of even making appointments down the line. You have to survive. That's why doctors for the homeless and other health care workers know they have to be out on the streets practicing a different kind of medicine. O'Connell says veteran street nurses like Barbara McGinnis warned him that he'd have to slow down and get to know people. That requires taking time with people, requires never judging them, it requires sharing a bit of yourself, it requires having a cup of coffee, but mostly it involves listening and a consistent presence. Those are all the things that we rarely get to do when you're in a hospital or clinic setting where things have to go so fast. And Barbara would turn to me and say, if you don't establish that trust, she said, then you will never have any continuity of care and you'll never get people to do any of the things you need them to do. And she was so right. Most people didn't tell me anything the first week, some not for the first month, some not for the first year. But as I became more and more part of the fabric of the shelter in the streets, then people would begin to trust you and slowly they'd share their stories with you. O'Connell says until doctors know the stories of the homeless, there is really no way to work around their scars and paranoias to treat them. Withers agrees. In fact, he wishes every patient could be treated in much the same way, at a slower pace where listening is most important. Taking that time, it's an investment perhaps in the way things are scheduled now, but just sitting with them and looking them in the eye and listening, letting them explain who they are. That's important everywhere, but it's particularly important on the street because they have a huge deficit in terms of receiving any sort of respect. I had people when I began to listen to them by the campsites and riverbanks who would just break down crying, saying, I can't believe someone cares that we're still alive here. The power of just listening opens things up. If you respect someone and give them a sense that they have control in this relationship over their own autonomy, their own care plan, then they let their guard down and they let you actually be part of that and they begin to trust you. But up until that point, there's a lot of fear and mistrust. So it's just a matter of investing time with people. But even then, how can the homeless ever manage the follow-up care that's required to treat major illnesses? Sometimes it takes the entire community, as O'Connell found when tuberculosis was diagnosed in more than 60 homeless people in central Boston. Treatment of this particularly resistant strain required four medications administered daily for 18 months, seemingly a recipe for failure. But if medics have personal relationships out on the street, amazing things can happen. Even though the whole picture looks chaotic, the life of each individual homeless person tended to be more ritualistic than not. So most people kept to the same geographic area, stopped in the same places, you know, at the lunchtime, went to the same library or bar or something in the afternoon. And we had to learn the patterns of each individual. And as you started to learn that, the chaos dissipated into a semblance of some order. We'd have to get on our bikes. This is in 1985. Get on our bikes and go find them on the street corners where they would be. We also learned that a few of them would use a 
a particular bar and we'd go to the bartender and ask the bartender, when they show up in the afternoon, can you call us? We'll come down and give them the medication. And in a few instances, the bartender was willing to just keep the medicine in a little cabinet there. And so when people came in, he'd bring it over, they'd take it out of their bottle and he'd put it back. And the bartenders and the barbershops and the, all sorts of people in the community became our eyes and ears to treat this. That's a success story, but O'Connell says they happen too seldom. He and Withers say if street people can only get into housing, then they have safety and routine that can begin to ease their medical problems as well. When we get people into housing, I have watched over time their ability. It doesn't happen right away, but their ability to embrace the things that they need to get into a healthier place is much easier for them because they're not afraid of someone murdering them in the night. They don't have some of the uh, distractions on the street. They're not in a survival mode, basically. And with the right team, they don't just feel dropped either. They feel like they have people they can trust. And over time, they do better. It's miraculous, actually, to see how much of a factor housing can be in providing better health. The homeless have so many factors going against them that Withers admits he's had times of despair. But he says the rewards are priceless and a reminder of our shared humanity. According to a lot of economists, most Americans are themselves just one paycheck away from the street. You can find out more about all of our guests through links on our website, RadioHealthJournal.net. I'm Reed Pence. Reproductive history may play a role in Alzheimer's disease. Research reported at the 2018 Alzheimer's Association International Conference finds that women with three or more children have a 12% lower risk of dementia compared to women with one child, while each month a woman is pregnant may lower her Alzheimer's risk by 5.5%. Dr. Heather Snyder is Senior Director of the Alzheimer's Association. While this is very early research, these new findings are especially interesting because more women than men have Alzheimer's, and we need to figure out why. There are a variety of risk factors that affect us throughout our entire life. And understanding what happens to a woman's body and brains over time may help us discover effective prevention and treatments. The new report also found that the number of miscarriages may impact dementia risk. The Alzheimer's Association says nearly two-thirds of Americans with Alzheimer's disease are women. Find out more about the impact of Alzheimer's on women at www.alz.org. I am a non-attorney spokesperson representing a team of lawyers who help people that have been injured or wronged. If you've been involved in a serious car, truck, or motorcycle accident, or injured at work, you have rights, and you may be entitled to money for your suffering. Don't accept an offer you get from an insurance company until you talk to a lawyer, and we represent some of the best personal injury lawyers you can find. Tough lawyers that will fight to win your case, and they're so good they stake their reputation on it by only getting paid if you win. So if you've been in a serious car, truck, or motorcycle accident, or hurt on the job, find out today for free what kind of compensation you may be entitled to. Call the legal helpline right now. 800-513-5981-800-513-5981-800-513-5981. That's 800-513-5981. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTracks Communications. If you enjoyed this week's show, please leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on iTunes, Stitcher, and at RadioHealthJournal.net.